that God's people need must be obedient to God, trust God, and take responsibility for God's people. Like father, like son. It's an old saying. I tried to Google who said it first, but I won't say because I really don't know. But there must be a reason that people still continue to say it. There's an expectation that in some ways, a son be like his father. And similarly for a daughter and her mother. Perhaps from spending a bit of time with the boys, for example, the little ones in childcare and gospel project right now, you can see ways that these little guys resemble their dads. From the quirky things to things that really matter, from appearances to personality, for better or for worse. So, so far, as we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel, We've met more than one pair of fathers and sons. We met Eli the priest and his wicked sons. One could apply like father, like son in that case. Although Eli's son's wickedness was much more public than his own. We also were briefly introduced to Samuel's sons, who are contrasted with Samuel. They did not walk in the same godly way that Samuel did. So like father, like son, wouldn't really apply in that case. And then coming to chapters 13 and 14 today of the book of 1 Samuel, we'll be introduced to Saul's oldest son, Jonathan. And instead of seeing ways in which they are like father, like son, we'll notice how Saul and Jonathan are contrasted. In literature, this is called a foil when one character contrasts the other character in order to highlight certain traits. The Bible is not only great literature, well, not only great history, but also great literature. So if you haven't turned there already, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. You also can find it printed in your bulletin. This is a long passage, and it will be helpful for you to be able to continue to refer to the passage during the sermon. Before we look at the passage, I'd like to introduce a main point for us to take away from the passage today. And that main point is this. The king that God's people need must be obedient to God, trust God, and take responsibility or God's people. The king that God's people need must be obedient to God, trust God, and take responsibility for God's people. Say that one more time for those who are taking notes. The king that God's people need must be obedient to God, trust God, and take responsibility for God's people. We'll break this up into three points. Number one, a lack of obedience. 
We'll look at that in chapter 13, verses 1 to 15. Number two, a lived out trust. We'll look at that from chapter 13, verse 16 to 14, verse 23. And number three, a lack of responsibility. We'll look at that from chapter 14, verse 24 to 46. And then we'll finish with some thoughts to conclude uh, with those last several verses from chapter 14, 37 to 52. So in this way, we'll contrast Saul and Saul's lack of obedience and lack of responsibility with Jonathan's lived out trust of God. So let's begin with point one, a lack of obedience. A lack of obedience. Please look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 to 15. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at 1 Samuel 11 and 12. And the last two verses of 1 Samuel 12 read, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. 
Israel and Israel's king had been commanded to fear God and to serve God. There's this clear command for obedience. And in this section, the narrator shows us how Saul is doing at keeping this command. The numbers in 13, verse 1, are one of the very, very few places in the Bible where we're unsure of what the original numbers in Hebrew were. Because of this, it's difficult to say exactly how long Saul reigned as king. So some translations even have like a a dot, 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 or a blank. But more importantly here than how long Saul reigned as king is what kind of king Saul was. Going back to that quote from the last chapter. And so we continue on in our story. Verses 2 to 4 shows Saul splitting up the troops between himself and Jonathan. One thing a bit strange to notice here is that the text clearly says that it's Jonathan who won the victory over the Philistine garrison. But Saul was having the trumpet blown, and it was being proclaimed that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Now, kings often do take credit when credit is not due. And it appears that Saul was taking credit for victory when he did not engage in battle. But that's just one ominous sign of things to come. Verse 4 says that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. They did not appreciate their garrison being overtaken. And the Philistines wanted to keep Israel under their thumb and made a grand show of force. Verse 5 highlights the impressive Philistine army that came out to punish the Israelites who had dared to fight against them. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore. You can't count how many troops the Philistines had. And so the Israelites are afraid. They see this massive force coming and they're a bunch, of the, uh, a bunch of the Israelites begin to hide. Soldiers are deserting, fleeing as far from the battle as possible. And those who are still with Saul are shaking with fear. So this is when Saul faces his predicament. Samuel had clearly told Saul back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, Then go down before me to Gilgal, And behold, I'm coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what to do. But here's Saul, and it's already the seventh day. More and more Israelites are fleeing. The Israelites had asked for a king to lead them into battle. But as the battle draws near, they're running. And instead of waiting, as Samuel said, Saul offers up the burnt offering himself. It seems that what Saul did is wrong, not because the the king oversteps his bounds by offering up an offering. Other kings would do that. Other kings would offer offerings in the future. There would be no problem with that. But what Saul did was wrong because he went directly against God's word spoken by God's prophet, Samuel. Similarly to how the people were afraid, Saul also seems afraid, and he takes matters into his own hands. But Samuel still came on the seventh day. 
he still came within the time he said he would. And Samuel asked Saul, what have you done? I'm sure Samuel could smell and see the burnt offering. It was obvious what Saul had done. But Samuel wanted to hear Saul's explanation. And similarly to Adam and Eve's explanation back in the garden, after they sinned, Saul gives excuses and he blame shifts. Saul says, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now what Saul says isn't completely true. Samuel did come within the time appointed. And while maybe what he said is partly true, he may have been seeking the Lord's favor. But it seems more that, that he is trusting in the sacrifice or the offering itself to draw Israelites back. He's, he's thinking of his own ideas rather than simply praying to God and obeying God's word. So in Samuel's response to Saul, Samuel emphasizes Saul's disobedience. Samuel says to Saul in verses 13 and 14, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Notice the verb command or commanded repeated in these verses. When Saul went against Samuel's words, Saul was going against God's command. And going against God's commands is not a minor thing. I think of times when me or my wife have to discipline our older son. I know he's still little, but he does seem to understand what is right and wrong. So oftentimes... It's not the particular action that makes things the most deserving of discipline. It's the fact that we just told him that he cannot do that. And then he looks at us and he still does it. So whether it's ripping a page off a book or running to his little brother's room and slamming the door when he's sleeping, if we hadn't just told him not to do these things, his doing this action would be more understandable. But since we had just told him, it seems like he knows what he's doing. He has this guilty face on as he, right after he does it. That's where the sin would be in the breaking of a command. One can imagine the guilty look on Saul's face as Samuel explains very clearly Saul's sin and the punishment for Saul's sin. God's command given through Samuel was meant for Saul to obey. And Saul's disobedience reveals his heart. It's not that of a man whose heart is after God's heart. And so there would be no dynasty for Saul. Saul's kingdom would not continue. This may sound like a severe punishment, but going against the direct command of the king of the universe is a severe crime. And God has a high standard for those who lead his people. Looking at our own hearts, 
I think we can relate to Saul's excuses, though, can't we? Saul looks on his circumstances, and he's afraid. So he acts according to what he thinks makes sense at the time. So how often might we blame our circumstances for our sin? Because of this reason or that reason, I felt pressure to sin. Because I had a bad day. Because everyone around me was doing it. Because I was stressed. Because I was scared of what would happen if I spoke the truth. And our circumstances may be difficult, but our circumstances don't give us an excuse to disobey God. In difficult circumstances, it will be more difficult to trust God. But even in difficult circumstances, we can trust God and obey Him. We must prioritize obedience to God our King. Now, it's also good to recognize when we're prone to sin and be ready to battle against sin. But this is different from making excuses for our sin. The king that God's people needed would be a king who had a heart that would be true to God's heart. Having a heart that is true to God's heart means that we obey God. Saul had good looks, but he did not have the that kind of heart. Saul tried to rely on his own way of doing things rather than trust God by obeying God's commands. And so there would be no crown to be passed down through Saul's family line. The crown would be given to someone true to God's heart. That brings us to our second point, a lived-out trust. A lived out trust. Please look with me beginning at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 16. We'll read until chapter 14, verse 23. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. One day, Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which 
Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison. There was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So before we consider Jonathan's trust in God, we learn how bad the circumstances were. So there are three companies of Philistine raiders roaming about. The Israelites can't do anything to stop them. And while we had read before that the Philistines have 30,000 chariots, the Israelites just had two swords. Saul had one sword, and Jonathan had the other. If you think of any movie picturing a grand battle scene, for example, the outnumbered good guys at the Battle of Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings, at least the outnumbered good guys have more than two swords. 
any normal military general would look on the troops of the Israelites and look on the troops of the Philistines and not give the Israelites any chance of winning. Were the Israelites capable of taking down chariots with their bare hands? But sometimes when the situation is most bleak, it reminds us that we really can't win on our own strength. And so we have this bold conversation with Jonathan and his armor bearer. Verse 1 mentions that Jonathan doesn't tell his father. Perhaps Jonathan assumes Saul will tell him not to do it. It's interesting to note as well who is with Saul at this point. The Bible gives no unnecessary details. Saul is with the priest Ahijah, who is the brother of Ichabod, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli. Now, why put in a, a tiny little genealogy here? I think it's because what is brought to mind is that Saul's kingly line has been rejected by God. And now the, the priest who is accompanying him is the priest whose priestly line has also been rejected. Notice that Samuel is not on the scene. So this does not bode well for Israel. But there's at least one warrior who is still trusting God in Israel. So 14 verse 6 is key here. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Notice how Jonathan refers to the Philistines as uncircumcised. Jonathan is speaking of the difference between the Israelites and the Philistines, and the difference that matters isn't who has more swords and who has more chariots. The difference that matters is that the Philistines are uncircumcised and the Israelites are circumcised in obedience to God. The difference that matters is the Israelites are God's people. And so Jonathan has this trust that God may choose to work for his people. Notice as well that Jonathan uses the word may. Jonathan does not 100% know for sure that it is God's will to save his people in this particular situation. But he trusts that God can save his people. And he can just as well use two people as 20,000 to save his people. This is a good lesson for us today as as well as we seek to trust God. We do not trust God just in order to, to get something. There are situations in which we cannot pretend to, to know God's will. But whatever the case, we trust God because he know, we know He is trustworthy and He can save. God does not need to automatically reward our trust with some sort of present. Instead, we can continue to trust God no matter what the circumstances are. In the last section, Saul's fear is understandable and relatable. And in this section, it may be difficult to relate to Jonathan's trust. It seems supernatural rather than natural. But Jonathan's trust is such a beautiful picture of the trust that God deserves from his people. And a king was meant to lead the people to trust God, their king, in this way. 
Israel's king was meant to understand that our, our trust is not in chariots or horses, but in the Lord and in the Lord alone. And so in Jonathan's trust of God, we're getting a taste of what a true king of God's people should be like. And as Jonathan is trusting God, Jonathan leads others to trust God as well. Jonathan's armor bearer trusts Jonathan and goes with him. Jonathan makes a bit of a test to see whether they should go up to the Philistines. The Philistines thought this whole thing was quite entertaining and just invite them to come on up. But their laughter soon would cease. By God's power, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed 20 men in a small area of land, and a great panic comes about in the Philistine camp. There was even an earthquake. Back at base camp, the watchmen can see that there's something going on in the Philistine camp. And Saul soon realizes that Jonathan and his armor-bearer are not there. He hadn't noticed until that point. He tells Ahijah, the priest to bring the ark of God, as Saul seems to want to seek God's direction. Uh, but then Saul changes his mind and just charges into battle. The fact that the ark of God is with a descendant of Eli in the battle camp should also remind us of earlier in 1 Samuel, when the Israelites tried to use the ark of God to force God to help them in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Saul's attitude towards the Ark of God is also a bit strange in this passage as, as it seems like first he wants the priest to help get direction and then he just changes his mind and goes. So Saul doesn't seem to be acting very kingly. But in spite of Saul's inaction until the end, God still saves Israel through his son, Jonathan. Even the Israelites who had deserted from Israel to the Philistines joined back with their people. Jonathan was right. God can save by many, and he can save by few. Israel had two swords, but God simply used the Philistine swords against one another. In witnessing Jonathan's trust of God as a leader, we witness the kind of trust of God that would make a good leader for God's people. Jonathan was a leader who did not trust in his own ingenuity, his own strength, he was a leader who clearly understood that God is worthy of all our trust. So brothers and sisters, where do you turn when it is hard to trust God? Can you look past your circumstances? Can you remember that God can save you despite your circumstances? Can you trust God with your circumstances? Jonathan acted on his faith without knowing what God would do. And that's a good picture of faith for all of us to learn from. It's a faith that's willing to act even without a certain outcome. But at the same time, we wouldn't call it a blind faith because it's a faith that is trusting in who God is. In trusting who God is, we know that God is working for our good and for His glory. And so, brothers and sisters, I think our main application here is not necessarily, oh, I need to muster up more trust. Because trust isn't that simple. Can you think of which friends or perhaps a family member that 
you trust most. I imagine you haven't spent much time sitting down trying to convince yourself, oh, I need to trust this person, I need to trust this person. Instead, trust came about as you got to know this person, and he or she consistently displayed trustworthiness. And then to think that even our most trustworthy friend may fail, but God will never fail. And so we want to be people who are growing and understanding that our God is trustworthy. What can build our trust is, is getting to know God more through his word. Theology is not a separate compartment in our brains. It's an understanding of who God is that shapes how we view every aspect of life. As we get to know God more, we get to better understand why he's so worthy of our trust. That brings us to point three, a lack of responsibility. A lack of responsibility. Please look with me from chapter 14, verse 24 until, 20, uh, until 46. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his Father, father charged the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies than they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he sent all Israel, 
you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. If this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Now this seems a bit of a strange way to continue this story of victory, doesn't it? Verse 23, the, the Lord saved Israel that day. And then here we have Saul making this vow. Jonathan's words were God-focused in the previous section. But here Saul's vow is me-focused. Saul says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Saul does not say the Lord's enemies. Saul says they're his enemies. It's as if Saul has made this war his, his personal vendetta against the Philistines. So as the story develops, we read of Saul's lack of responsibility and, and care for his people, for God's people, in not thinking through the consequences of his vow. The people are hungry. There's honey dripping onto the ground, but they can't eat it. Jonathan did not hear his father make this vow, and he takes a bite, and his eyes become bright. As the story develops, we read of, or you don't ask someone to run a marathon and not eat or drink water during the marathon. But the Israelites have been running after the Philistines for hours, and they're constrained by King Saul's rash oath. Saul's oath also causes the Israelites to be in a situation in which they would be more tempted to sin. When the day is over, the time of the oath has passed, the people are so hungry, they ignore God's commands about eating animals with blood in them. So while they, they avoided falling under Saul's curse, they instead disobey God's commands. Now Saul quickly tries to make the best out of a bad situation by having a place for the animals to be slaughtered correctly. And then Saul has this plan to continue attacking the Philistines through the whole night. But God does not answer him, so Saul tries to figure out why. Remember that Jonathan had not heard Saul's oath. But when Saul asked Jonathan what he did, Jonathan very simply confesses what he did, no excuses, and he says, here I am, I will die. Saul replies that Jonathan will die. But friends, remember what Jonathan had did in contrast to Saul. 
Jonathan trusted God and led the Israelites to victory. And so the Israelites who had been quiet, who had just simply said a couple times, oh, oh, do what seems good to you, now felt that they had to speak up. Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. He continues on to say that the people ransomed Jonathan. The people are not willing to see Jonathan die. And in this way, Saul's curse goes back on his own head because he cannot carry out the punishment for his curse. And somewhat anticlimatically, Saul simply is done pursuing the Philistines. The Philistines go back to their own place. In order to take responsibility for God's people, the king was meant to care for the people. The king was meant to care enough that the that his soldiers are not fainting of hunger and that they're not led into sin. The king was meant to care enough so that he wouldn't end up making an oath that would put him in danger of executing his own son for no good reason. And at this point, the people of Israel cannot accept their king's foolishness. They cannot accept Prince Jonathan being put to death on the very day that God had used Jonathan to save his people. So, brothers and sisters, who might we be responsible for? Who might we be leading? Can we care for them in, an, in a God-honoring, other-centered way? Or do we lead in a me-centered way? Let's check our own hearts in taking on God-given responsibilities in a loving way. Those who love God are to love His people. Think on Jesus' questions and commands to Peter at the end of the book of John. Jesus asks, do you love me? Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus replies, to care for a sheep, feed my sheep. So for those of us who lead, and I think we can all think of different ways in which we may lead, we want to do so with a loving responsibility. There's one more little section of this passage that can help us to sum up this passage as a whole. It sums up Saul's life, and that's in verses 47 to 52. So please look with me there. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. 
Okay, first I want to ask a question, and that is why are we summing up Saul's life now? There's much more to the story of Saul's life in the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. Saul has a lot of life still left to live. But very soon in our story, the focus is going to shift from Saul to the king who is described as the man after God's own heart. It will shift from the crowned king to the anointed king. And so here, somewhat abruptly, somewhat sounding like Saul is already dead or his reign is already over, we have this summation of what Saul did when he was king. In some ways, it's a favorable depiction. Speaks of Saul routing his enemies. Speaks of Saul valiantly striking the Amalekites. Speaks of Saul's sons and daughters. But then notice the first half of verse 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. Contrast that with how Samuel's judgeship was described in 1 Samuel 7, verse 13, which says, So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So I want to ask you, did Israel really need a king? When Israel had no king under the godly leadership of Samuel, there was peace in the land because God was protecting his people by his mighty hand. But during King Saul's reign, there was continual war with the Philistines. But this goes back to our main point. The king that God's people need must be obedient to God, trust God, and take responsibility for God's people. The main point is not whether this man is called judge or it's called king. The main point is how this leader leads in relation to God. Saul did see some military success. He was in many ways still the kind of king that the Israelites had asked for. And he took Israelites and attached them to himself, just like Samuel warned that he would. But the king God's people really needed was a king who would trust in the Lord. Ultimately, the king that God's people need is Jesus. Because we all, like Saul, were me-centered blame shifters, disobedient to God. Disobedient to the king of the universe and deserving the death penalty for our guilt. But God, in his mercy, sent Jesus. Jesus submitted himself to God the Father. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus trusted the Father's plan for his life. If you're here today and you're interested in finding more about the Christian faith, I would encourage you to begin by learning more and more about who Jesus is and why he came to die. And the Christians in this room would love to help you in that journey. Just as Jesus took the cup of suffering and trusted the Father's plan for his life today, as Christians were to take up our crosses and trust the Father's plan for our own lives. Later in the service, we'll take the Lord's Supper. As we do, remember that Jesus asked that this cup of suffering would pass, but said, not my will, but yours 
be done. Remember how the anointed king submitted to his father's plan to offer salvation to his people. King Jesus trusted and he obeyed. In King Jesus, we have a humble king who is the king of kings. God chose to deliver us through King Jesus and in King Jesus reveal who he is to the world. So let us walk in obedience and in trust of the Lord our God, following the example of our king, the king of kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you, for you are God. You are the Lord of the universe. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that he is the shepherd king, that he cares for his people. We thank you for the example that he gives of submitting to his Father, of submitting to you and trusting you. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us for obedience, that you would strengthen us to trust. Lord, we pray that we would continue to, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who you are, in our love for you and in our love for others. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.